This is the deadliest outbreak of Ebola on record. The latest figures from the World Health Organization show more than 1,200 people have been infected in Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. And around 670 of them have died. Cases of H5N8 bird flu have been detected in wild ducks in northern France amid a recent outbreak of the disease in Europe. I think we'll, we'll do better with them, uh, with more research and development, but we can't guarantee that new infections won't come around, which could uh, be pretty bad until we get on top of them. That's Professor Peter Doherty, immunologist and laureate professor at the University of Melbourne's Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. In 1996, he shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with his colleague Rolf Zinkenagel, for their discovery of how the immune system recognises virus-infected cells. Will Isdale spoke to Professor Doherty about the history of pandemics of infectious diseases, how they start, and how the battles to control the pandemics are fought. Professor Doherty also spoke on where future threats exist and what can be done to arrest the spread of pandemics. A pandemic um, is basically an infection that goes worldwide and is a new infection that goes worldwide, in fact. And the, the definition of a pandemic isn't all that great, but that's essentially what it is. How recent is our understanding of bacteria and viruses and the way that they can cause infectious disease? It's, it's really quite recent in the history of human affairs. If you think that human beings have been around for at least 100, 120,000 years, and of course hominids have been around for much, much longer than that, then our understanding of the nature of infectious disease goes back to the mid-19th century, to the work of Louis Pasteur, uh, Robert Koch, and various other people before that. We didn't understand that infection was caused by transmissible entities like viruses and bacteria. We thought it was caused by miasmas, by fogs, by bad humours, by all sorts of strange things. We had no real understanding. When we read about the past, for instance, about medieval Europe, it sounds like an absolutely terrifying place when it comes to infectious disease. Could you paint us a picture of how bad things were in the past and how far we've come since then? When the, um, the plague came into Britain, the Black Death in the 14th century, it killed somewhere between a half to one third of the population. Can you imagine that? A half to one third of people died. And the plague raged through Europe for centuries. It didn't go away. Um, of course, people, those who survived became immune, but it was a terrifying disease and no one had any real understanding of where it was coming from. So they blamed witches or they blamed minority people or they had all sorts of odd theories but uh, no real understanding at all. And it's when we started to understand infectious disease and we started to isolate the causes, causative agents that we were then able to develop counters like vaccines and treatments and antibiotics and all the rest of it. So what's led to such a remarkable decline in the burden of infectious disease since then? Well, basically understanding. Once we could grow bacteria, which we could from about this certainly from the second half of the 19th century. Once we could transmit infections with viruses and later grow viruses, though we didn't grow viruses very well 
uh, in, uh, until the uh, 20s and 30s, then uh, we could start to work with these organisms and develop counters. And the first counters were vaccines against things like the diphtheria toxoid or antisera. And these were around by uh, around 1900, some of them. And then progressively through the 20th century, we developed most of the vaccines and uh, the antibiotics and so forth we use today. We've been highly successful, but in the process, of course, we've developed certain problems like antibiotic resistance in bacteria. And the other problem is, of course, that we don't have vaccines against all the major infections, uh, particularly, for instance, the human immunodeficiency virus, which has proved to be a really hard nut to crack. There seems to be some consensus that during the 20th and 21st century, the worst pandemic that we face has been the Spanish flu. Why exactly was it so devastating? We're not totally sure. It came at the end of the First World War, and you might think that it hit particularly people who were debilitated as a result of that war, but that's not the case. It went globally and it infected and killed people in all sorts of communities that weren't involved with the war at all. It killed large numbers of our indigenous people, for example, even though by the time it got to Australia, and it took over a year to get to Australia by ship, the disease was relatively milder than it had been. It also killed large numbers of the people up in Alaska, the various Eskimo Inuit communities and so on. So it was a terrible pandemic. Partly we think it was due to the nature of the particular influenza virus, though we didn't isolate any influenza virus for something like 15 years after that pandemic. And partly we think it was due to secondary bacterial infection. So with secondary bacterial infection, we can handle that with antibiotics. So we might do a lot better with influenza, but we still worry that we could get another terrible pandemic like that. And that uh, because of the nature of influenza, which spreads by respiratory means, and because of the fact we spread it very quickly with modern air travel, we could have a devastating global pandemic very, very quickly. It's been almost 100 years now since the Spanish flu. Do you think we're just on a lucky streak in terms of not having had something comparable or worse? Or have things fundamentally changed to make a similar kind of outbreak less likely? It could be that things have changed, but we don't really know that that's the case. We do know that there are some terrible influenza viruses out there, and we see them particularly in poultry because the influenza A viruses, which are the ones we're worried about here, are also in uh, diseases that infect birds. In fact, they're primarily infections of birds that jump across into us or jump across into pigs and jump across into us. So in those poultry populations, we've seen situations where a mild influenza virus with a single mutational change, just one mutational change, can go from something very mild to something extraordinarily lethal. So we worry about that with human populations, but we haven't seen that. And the other thing we don't know is because human beings live quite a long time, and we get regular infections with influenza viruses, we think there may be more cross-reactive immunity than we previously suspected. So we may have some level of immunity, even though it's not perfect immunity. And then, of course, for secondary bacterial infection, we have antibiotics. Could you speak a bit more about why influenzas in particular are such a, a large pandemic risk in comparison to other sorts of viral or bacterial uh, diseases? Well, with, with, with diseases like measles, if you've had it, you're not going to get it again. Or if you've been vaccinated and you've had the full course of vaccination, you're unlikely to get it. So we're not, once, once you've, you've had the experience either of vaccination or being infected, you're not likely to get measles again. But the situation with influenza is there are many, many, many types and they're maintained in aquatic birds. And these 
viruses can at times jump across into us, and sometimes totally new viruses jump across from birds into us. They jump across particularly, for instance, where people are very much in contact with birds that are very crowded together. For instance, in some of the live bird markets in China, have been a source of infection that's jumped across into humans. Fortunately, the recent occurrences we've had of that, we had a virus called H7N9 that jumped across to humans, killed a lot of people, uh, especially older people, but they only, it only infected people from birds. And so the, the virus didn't change in a way that spread between humans. Our real fear is we'd get a highly virulent virus like that, which would change in a way that allowed it to spread between humans. And that's, that's a major concern. It was only one random sample taken at a local market that proved positive for the virus, but in a crowded city like Hong Kong, that is enough to generate this amount of media interest, especially given the virus involved. This was H7N9, the more virulent type of bird flu. This wholesale market has been closed while a cull is taking place of more than 4,000 birds, and the trade in live poultry across Hong Kong has been stopped. People get particularly concerned about viruses like Ebola and Hendra, which cause very horrific deaths. Are they not potential pandemic risks? In their present form, they're not really pandemic risks, though they can, as we saw with Ebola, they can cause horrible epidemics in regions that don't know what they're dealing with. Ebola virus has been around since the mid-1970s. Initially, it was first detected in the Congo. It caused a number of deaths because people didn't understand what they were dealing with. In fact, some of the early deaths were caused because nuns were reusing needles in, in uh, uh, missionary hospitals there. Once we understood it, once we understood that when people are sick with Ebola, late in the disease, if they have what's called wet Ebola, that is there's a lot of fluid around and, and, uh, and so forth, then they can be extraordinarily infectious and they were infecting a lot of other people because of the African uh, practice of touching the dead at, at, uh, at funerals and so forth. Once that was understood and the propaganda got out there not to do this and we understood that those people should be nursed in what we call barrier nursing, that is the, the nurses wear protective gear like masks and gowns and gloves and the people are kept isolated. Once that happened, we, 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 we could control those outbreaks and we had regular outbreaks in the Congo that were controlled in that way simply by recognising the disease for what it is and, and handling it by barrier nursing. Then we got an occurrence in West Africa where people weren't used to it. The various international agencies that used to come in to help for various reasons didn't get alerted quickly enough. It was left to Médecins Sans Frontières, who did a wonderful job. I mean, they're a fantastic organisation, but they're not really set up to do that. And it spread much more quickly because people didn't understand the danger, for instance, of touching uh, people who died or the danger of, uh, of contamination. And once, once that started to be understood, then the, the whole epidemic started to slow down. Now, we had several cases in the United States, I think maybe a case or two back in the United Kingdom, but there was never a risk it would cause a pandemic. And the reason there was no risk it would cause a pandemic is that once you understand what it is and once you use, and if you're in a modern hospital setting, 
then you stop the disease very quickly. It just changes because of the way the, uh, the people handle these cases and behave. And Hendra virus is the same. I mean, Hendra virus has killed very few people. Horrible disease, but it's killed very few people. So unless those viruses change it in some way, that they started to spread between us, say, by respiratory spread like influenza does, then they're not a major pandemic risk, though they're horrible, horrible diseases. With the some degree of hindsight that we now have, how well do you think that the international community, and in particular some of the institutions like the World Health Organization, dealt with and responded to Ebola? The World Health Organization did not deal with Ebola as well as it had in the past. Uh, there are constant changes in leadership in the World Health Organization. If you take United Nations agencies, some of them work better than others. WHO on the whole works pretty well, but there are problems in the way uh, WHO appoints its leadership group due to having to sort of satisfy the needs of various nation states and so forth. So sometimes it doesn't do as well as it might. And WHO definitely didn't move quickly enough on the Ebola outbreak in West Africa or, or def definitively enough. And um, CDC, the American group, uh, wasn't there quickly enough. And I think to some extent that's, uh, that's uh, the fault of WHO. Apart from the influenza viruses, is it very common for infectious diseases to spill over from animals into humans? It happens a lot. I mean, uh, Ebola comes uh, into us um, um, from initially it's, it's maintained, we think, in fruit bats. It's transmitted across uh, to, to, to uh, primates. It can be transmitted to us directly and so forth. Um, we're not absolutely certain, I think, where the West African outbreak came from. But that's common. And as we get more and more people in countries like Africa and we move more and more into the rainforests and clear them, we get more and more risk of exposure. Hendra virus is a virus that, uh, that goes from, from fruit bats to people via horses. And uh, the, the horses, the real risk is you don't want to put horses under a fruit tree because that's where they can get infected. And the people who've been infected with Hendra, as I recall, are particularly, say, veterinarians or veterinary assistants who are called out to deal with a horse who's suddenly sneezing and coughing and not doing very well, and they get an enormous dose of virus, and, and, and we've had fatalities. But it's a very unusual disease. There's a similar virus called uh, Nipah virus that where it goes from fruit backs into pigs. And again, it's a question of keeping pigs away from fruit that may have been contaminated by fruit, fruit bats. So the, these ecological systems. Then, of course, there was SARS in, uh, we, we experienced back in, I think it was 2002, where, uh, again, a virus in fruit bats went to a little animal called a Himalayan civet cat, and the civet cat was in live animal markets in China where it was killed and eaten. It's a, it's a forest creature, but, but the Chinese have some of this practice of catching wild animals and eating them. And, uh, and then it got into humans, and that did spread between humans. And it caused a lot of, uh, number of deaths, I think about 800 deaths, particularly in medical personnel. The way we solved it was we'd never seen this virus before, but with modern technology, it was worked out in a couple of months. We knew what it was. It was a new virus that had come out of uh, fruit bats. And uh, we understood when we knew what the virus was and we could measure it in the blood and the secretions and so forth from people, we realised that people were very infectious late in the disease, which is quite unlike influenza. We're very infectious early and people have mistaken influenza, influenza which is why... 
the doctors were, and the nurses were getting it because the people were already sick in hospital but pushing out a lot of virus. Once we understood that again, we practiced barrier nursing. Uh, we swabbed down things like lift buttons because it could survive on surfaces and stopped the epidemic. That we're not dealing with just a blip on the radar screen. But as Dr. Gerberding says, we're not really sure where it's going to go because we are truly in the middle of the evolution of, a, of an epidemic. There seem to be some animals that play an especially large role in the emergence of novel viruses. I'm thinking in particular of birds, pigs and bats. Is there some reason this, that those animals are special that would mean that they're particularly likely to be involved in viral spillover? We've known for a long time, I mean, you know, 50 years, 30 years uh, and so forth, that influenza viruses can go from pigs to humans or from birds to humans. We've known that for some time and we're used to the idea. We haven't known uh, until really quite recently uh, that viruses go from fruit bats to humans. We did know one type of virus that was maintained in bats, and that was the Lisa virus. That's the rabies-type viruses. And, uh, and if someone's bitten with a bat containing uh, who's infected with one of those, because bats do seem to carry these infections as persistent infections, uh, we've had deaths. We've had deaths in Australia. We've had deaths in the United Kingdom. The virus is so close to rabies virus that we can protect bat handlers, and we have about 300 licensed bat handlers in Australia. We can protect them with rabies vaccine. But it's never gone into dogs, and we get uh, rabies normally if you're in North America or Europe if you get bitten by a rabid dog. So, uh, so it, it hasn't crossed in that way. But bats turn out to be a major reservoir of all sorts of infections, and we hadn't really suspected that. We didn't know that 20 years ago. Uh, the latest one is a virus called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syncytial Virus, very close to SARS, probably goes from fruit bats to camels to humans. But is there a known reason why those animals, opposed to lots of other species, would be particularly likely to have viral spillover? The bats, fruit bats particularly, uh, are, are a bit of a surprise to us. And it does seem we don't know anything much about their immune systems because it's usually the immune system that controls an infection. And it does seem that a lot of these viruses are causing rather persistent infections in fruit bats. These are viruses that don't damage the fruit bat but are horrible for us. I mean, there's a lot of that in, in nature, that a virus that doesn't cause any damage in the species where it normally circulates is suddenly is actually terrible for us because... We're a new host and it doesn't really care about as much. Uh, viruses on the whole don't want to kill their main hosts because it keeps them. It, it's better if we just get sick and move around and cough and splutter. Is it worth rethinking how we interact with the animals that do present a large spillover risk? So, for instance, is intensive farming of birds or pigs or living near bat populations something that we should be trying to move away from? Well, we certainly shouldn't put horses near fruit trees or pigs near fruit trees. And if we do that and we're careful, that, that minimises a lot of that risk. Also, the, um, uh, the, in, in India and Bangladesh, they got this Nipah virus, the one that infects pigs. People got infected because they were cutting into the, uh, I think it's the palm oil, uh, palm oil trees. I'm not sure which tree it was. They were cutting in to get the sap, which is sweet, and draining it off into cups. The bats were feeding on the cups and contaminating the syrup. And then people were eating that and they got sick. And so you need to understand how the virus is transmitted and then you take steps to stop that transmission. Uh, the, the likelihood of a direct transmission from uh, a big chicken house uh, to humans is actually fairly low. 
And, but from pigs to humans, we know the 2009 influenza virus, for instance, that circulated the planet had come because two different pig viruses had got together in a pig and they'd done what's called reassorting. That's their genes had mixed up. And that produced a virus which had... Uh, neither virus was, was very infectious, was infectious for humans, but when those two viruses mixed up, the virus that came out was very infectious for humans. So we've got to be careful around pigs. Uh, not a good idea to let your kids kiss a pig. Um, firstly, if the pig's got influenza, it'll give it to the kid. Secondly, if your kid's got influenza, the kid might give it to the pig. How much progress has there been with antiviral drugs? Um, antiviral drugs, we could do a lot more. We've got influenza antivirals um, that work. Uh, the virus can mutate away from them, but we're doing single use. The, the great success with antiviral drugs is with the human immunodeficiency virus, the AIDS virus. But here we use three different HIV, anti-HIV drugs that target different parts of the virus replication strategy. So if you target various ways, various parts of the virus's strategy to reproduce itself, then what you do is you stop mutations emerging because if it mutates away from one effect, it's very, it won't mutate away from the other two. So you stop. So you need triple therapy. This is exactly the same principle we use in cancer therapy. You use several different drugs that target different pathways so that the cancer doesn't mutate away and escape. And uh, with flu at the moment, we've got a limited range of drugs, but a lot more drugs are being developed that target different pathways. That would be the uh, strategy you'd use. But the problem is with, unlike HIV, which is a persistent infection, the virus gets in, it persists, it persists, and we, we need to control the persistence. Uh, but the problem with influenza, it's a very acute infection. It causes a lot of damage very fast. And the, and the antiviral drugs you have to take very, very early. And that's the difficulty. Uh, knowing that you've got flu that, e that early uh, rather than something else and taking the drug quickly, having the drug to take, for instance. So, so it's a real issue. The antiviral drugs with flu are, are problematic. And uh, for that reason, not that they, they work fine if you get them early and you don't have a mutant virus, but you just have to take them too early. So we need to understand a lot more about it's not just the virus itself that causes disease, say, in influenza. It's also aspects of the way we respond to the virus that cause problems. Um, we have to respond to it and make an antibody response, a T-cell response to eliminate the virus. But part of that process can actually damage us because as we're trying to damage the virus, we're damaging uh, our own blood vessel walls and so forth. And so we need to understand better how to control that part of it. If we could do that, if we could do more symptomatic control and we targeted it properly, we might do better with influenza pneumonia, for example. Do you think we're ever likely to see a universal vaccine for influenza? It, it, there's a lot of work going on in that regard. I mean, it's the same question as with the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, is because the virus changes so much by mutation, and with flu it also changes because of this reassortment effect where genes are repackaged. Uh, can we actually get one which cross-reacts? Well, we know that the, the main the protein on the surface of the virus, which is the target of the antibody molecules, the molecules that circulate in the blood and are the things we generate with vaccination, we know they generate... They, in flu, they bind to what's called a very variable part of the, that, that surface molecule on the virus, which stops it binding and getting into the cell. But that 
molecule can readily mutate and change so that the antibody that we've already got will no longer bind. It's what we call an escape mutation. And, uh, and basically, though, if you look at that molecule, it's called the hemagglutinin molecule, uh, part of it that's more down towards the base of the, of the virus, it, it actually is relatively conserved. So there's a lot of attempts to make vaccines that would promote that conserved antibody response. But it's not easy to make those antibodies. They're, they're made very rarely within us. About one in a million cells that makes antibodies will make these cross-reactive ones. Same problem with HIV. We can identify antibodies which are very cross-reactive, but we don't know how to, to trick the immune system into making those antibodies. We don't know how to make a vaccine. There's also a, the other phenomenon, the part of the immune system that I work on, which is a white blood cell called the killer T cell, which is a white blood cell which will bump off virus-infected cells. Or more recently, we've had a lot of success using them to bump off cancer cells. These are the serial hitmen of the immune system. Uh, there's also a lot more cross-reactivity in that response for different viruses. And there's some evidence that we can get a measure of protection through that. So we might get a vaccine which is partially protective, didn't stop us getting sick, but maybe stopped us getting much more severe disease. Over the past few decades, drug development on antibiotics has really slowed. Is that something that we should be very concerned about? Yes, yes. The slowing of drug development on antibiotics is a real problem. The, the big commercial uh, pharmaceutical companies tended to walk away from antibiotics. There wasn't enough profit in them. There was too much competition and so forth. So they tended to uh, dismantle a lot of their antibiotic divisions. Uh, in the meantime, though, we've had all this drug resistance emerging. So there's not, a, not nearly as much research as we'd like to see going on with antibiotics. We need to find different parts pathways to target because the type of pathway we've been targeting, we're rapidly getting escape mutants and, uh, and so forth. So, so uh, the Gates Foundation, for instance, William and Melinda Gates have put a fair amount of money into trying to develop new anti-TB drugs and so forth. And uh, we need more money in that, yeah. Do you think we're likely to see a return to the bad old days of widespread and fatal bacterial infections? One certainly hopes not. I, I don't think it would ever be as bad as it was because we understand these diseases much better and there are various strategies you can use, not just treating the, infection, the infectious agent but also treating the, um, uh, the symptoms and that may, may exacerbate the disease. But we do need new drugs in the antibiotic pipeline. I think we're capable of doing that, but you have to fund the scientists and you have to uh, also not just fund the scientists, you have to fund the testing that brings them to market and that can be very expensive and it's one of the reasons the drug companies tend to shy away from them. In terms of a pandemic outbreak, I'd like to know your thoughts on A, how prepared we are and B, what would you like to see done to improve our preparedness? I, I'm not sure there's that much can be done to pre improve preparedness. We, we got a lot of information out there when we were worried about the bird flu, and we had a lot of national pandemic plans, uh, companies made pandemic plans and all the rest of it. And um, the problem with that is, though, that everyone gets very energised at the time, 
people know what their responsibilities are under this particular pandemic plan and so forth. And, uh, and then, of course, when the threat goes away, it all drops off. We see the same thing in hospitals uh, where, where we know that uh, hand washing and sanitisation will stop a lot of the spread of these, these drug-resistant bacteria. But, but when a hospital gets an outbreak like that, everyone's very, very careful. But, you know, when it goes away, people kind of forget and they get more lax. It's just what we are as human beings. I think the really important thing to do as, as, uh, as concerned citizens and as voters is to insist that uh, governments do not diminish their public health services. They keep the number of public health officials up there and public health doctors employed. And we saw a lot of these people lose their jobs, for instance, under the Campbell-Newman administration in Queensland. You need to keep your public health activity strong. We need to keep our public health laboratories strong and we need to keep our infectious disease research really strong. So uh, as, as voters, and if you're concerned about this, I mean, talk to your political representatives and say, look, this has to be, has to be kept because we're backing off from so many of the things that government does. And it's not going to work if we hand it off to some, uh, some commercial testing outfit. They're, they're, not, they're not equipped to do this properly and they, they have to have a commercial motiva- motivation. Are there any really exciting developments in this field that you can foresee on the horizon? Um, the vaccine field, there are various possibilities, the cross-reactive antibodies and so forth. It's, uh, we're, we're kind of a, a bit waiting for a breakthrough. With antibiotics, I think we can see potential. You'd have to try to tackle different sort of metabolic pathways because the pathway has to be different from the back, between the bacteria and us. We can't target a metabolic pathway which we use in our own cells because it would be toxic for us. So, uh, so we need to, uh, to target that area. Um, there's all sorts of technologies out there, uh, viral interference type technologies and so forth, not um, uh, talked about a lot initially and then not really so obvious how we can use them. But there's a tremendous increase an almost exponential increase in our understanding of molecular mechanisms. And it would be surprising if we don't get new uh, strategies coming through from that. But I couldn't at this stage actually predict them. You know, scientists are very good at uh, telling you what's happened. Uh, Sometimes we're good at discovering things. We're not very good as soothsayers. So I was wondering if you could please share a few hot tips on what our listeners can do to prepare for a possible pandemic outbreak. I think the main thing with with a possible pandemic outbreak is to be aware and be informed. There's really good information online. Um, If you hear there's uh, an infectious disease outbreak, first place to go is probably Wikipedia. There's usually good information there. Um, You find out if it is a pandemic, it's spreading quickly, find out what avenue the public health officials are used to sort of disseminate information on what you should do and and stick to it. Uh, If it's an influenza outbreak, uh, maintaining social distance helps, and we can do that a lot better now than we could in the past, for instance, because of email and uh, and the type of communication systems we use. Uh, Hand washing is very important. Uh, Infections that we think of as primary respiratory, we can also transmit by hand to face. We touch our hands to our face much more than we realise. So hand washing is really important. Doesn't hurt if it's a respiratory uh, pathogen. Probably doesn't hurt to wear a face mask, but don't rely on it too heavily. Uh, Be sensible. Understand 
how it works, understand how it's transmitted, understand how the whole process goes and, and uh, listen to what the authorities are saying. Of course, the other thing is if it's a, it's a virus that uh, we know is, is likely to hit and so we'll get a vaccine if we've got a vaccine against it. I mean, you'd be very foolish to go, say, to West Africa without having yellow fever vaccine. And in fact, uh, you might get quarantined when you came back if you hadn't been vaccinated because still... In West Africa, uh, about 50,000 kids a year, uh, people a year die from yellow fever. Um, we've had a vaccine since, for that since 1957. It's just too expensive. Are annual seasonal flu vaccines very important for people to get? Uh, I, I, I take them. I, I, in fact, I get two shots. I get the one in Australia and the one in North America because they can be a bit different. And I, I've been working for two institutions and they both like you to get vaccinated. I, 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 I take them and they don't, they don't bother me. Some people have got a bit of an allergy to egg protein and some of the vaccines are made in eggs. But you, they ask you that question or they should ask you that question when you're going for the vaccine if they've got an egg-based vaccine because there are alternatives. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it, flu is a very bad disease, especially as you get older. It's, it can be a very lethal disease. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it used to be called the old man's friend because it uh, took out a lot of uh, elderly males particularly. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, flu vaccines are not perfect. They're not working as well in older people particularly as we'd like. Um, and I would like, um, we are working on influenza vaccines. In fact, uh, we need better influenza vaccines, but I, I still go for what we've got and I'll take it. Yeah. But is getting the influenza vaccine just about uh, preventing me from catching the disease and having the bad symptoms? Or is there, a, is there a public health benefit in me getting it in that I won't become a vessel to uh, have reassortment of the virus and spread it on, for instance? Yes, that's the other half of vaccination. If you, if you can avoid getting it, you don't become a transmitter. So you don't become part of the chain. This is particularly important with measles. I mean, measles is an extremely infectious virus. So we have to keep vaccination rates very high. We, we do have vaccination rates pretty high in Australia. And uh, they've just got higher because the federal government has insisted that uh, people have to be vaccinated before they get child benefits and so forth. And so uh, as long as we can keep particularly measles vaccine uh, rates up above 90% and so forth. Measles is a bad disease. I mean, you, you, people think it's mild and they had it as kids and they, they, they had some spots and they say they got better. But, but there's a lot of sequelae for measles that are not good. And you can get long-term lung damage from measles. You can get long-term ear damage. And there's a horrible disease called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis where the virus can actually get in your brain and it can hide out there and uh, years later come back and suddenly a healthy young teenager goes into a coma and dies. So it's a very rare disease, but once we introduced measles vaccine, the disease disappeared. So it was a pretty good um, cause and effect study. So um, the common vaccines of childhood, I think it's really important that kids get them. And some of them, uh, older people should get too. You, you should get boosted against whooping cough, for instance, if you're older, because you can get it from your grandkids and uh, keep up your flu vaccines and all the rest of it. Also get vaccinated against, um, if you had uh, chickenpox when you were a kid, get a booster when you get older, because then uh, it tends to prevent you getting shingles, which is a very painful and nasty disease. That's where we will leave Professor Doherty. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to Speaking With through iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or if you have ideas for future podcasts, please send us a comment through iTunes.